Well, Jay, how about the intro from the Flintstones? Does it get better than that? <laughs> no, it <laughs> doesn't. Be a certain age to remember that. <laughs> but they join a. Uh, yeah, this is our this is our anniversary show. This is our third year anniversary. We've done 160 regular episodes. We've done seven special episodes with folks including Merck Mercuriatus, Will Page, Nancy Wilson, folks from Luminate. And then this one, which you're going to tee up, but we have had such an incredible run so far, and we can't thank our listeners enough because it's fun for us to do it, but if nobody's listening, it's less fun. It sure is. We are so lucky. We really are, and we've had some really great intros. Um, People like Anna Nancy Wilson from Heart, Rick Nielsen, Ace Fraley, Rick Springfield, Stanley Clark, The Accidentals, Lisa Loeb, Travis Tritt, Immediate Family, Jack Blades, John Beasley, the list goes on and on. And we've also had a lot of great people sort of drop in and chat with us. Yeah, we've had the special episode, like you mentioned, but we've had Larry Miller from NYU, Bruno Del Granado, Chris Castle, Glenn Peoples, Dan Runcie, Ari Herstan, Shirley Halperin, Bobby Borg, Martin Clancy, Joel Selvin, Randall Foster, Mike Warner. The list goes on and on, and we are so fortunate. And for this special episode, we are thrilled uh, to sit down with... Uh, a couple of very smart uh, music fans, uh, researchers uh, from Media Research, Tatiana Sirisano. She's a senior music uh, industry analyst and consultant at Media, and Chris Thakra, he's a research consultant there. And we talk about these people a lot. We talk about Mark Mulligan, who's the founder of Media, and a couple of uh, reports that they put out recently that we sort of use as our guide for this episode. One is Mark Mulligan's Media Research 2023 to 2030 Global Music Forecasts. And man, they are accurate. And it's it's the source of, uh, you know, these uh, forecasts going forward. And the other one is one that Tatiana um, put together called The State and Future of Music Fandom. And those are two things that you and I talk about a lot. We talk about media a lot. And we are just so thrilled to celebrate three years. Uh, It's just been fantastic. I I can't think of anybody else I'd rather do this podcast with than you, my friend. And I think it's just been a joy for us. Every week we get on the phone, you know, we talk about what's going on that week and then we hit record and it's just been a wild three years. We've learned a lot. We've had a couple of people call us up and say, you know, uh, you're uh, you're maybe not covering Latin music too much or enough. Uh, thank you, uh, Bruno Del Granado. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, well, tell us. And then we bring him on. Uh, or somebody might say, you know, the ticketing thing, there's some complexities there. Uh, let's talk about that. So we appreciate our listeners. We appreciate each other, and we certainly appreciate Tatiana and Chris for coming on and celebrating our three-year anniversary together. All righty, and here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. 
Agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Tatiana, Chris, thank you so much for joining us for our three-year anniversary special episode. I got to tell you, Mike and I are huge fans of both you and uh, Midia. We talk about you all the time, and it's an it's an honor to see you guys. Yeah, thank, thank you for having us. Congrats on three years. Well, let, I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> and they said it wouldn't last. Um, so. Let's kick it off. There's two separate reports that we're going to focus on today. And the first one is titled Media Research 2023 to 2030 Global Music Forecasts. And so we're going to we're going to kick off with that one. And what what fascinates me about this report is number 1 how accurate you've you've been uh, historically on these forecasts which it's, it sounds like voodoo or witchcraft. I don't know how you do it, but we can talk about that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about this report. Yeah, I mean, I would start by saying um, it's really Mark Mulligan's uh, is really the brains behind this model. So just credit where credit's due on that. Um, but yeah, we put out these uh, an updated forecast um, every year around this time. And I mean, there's a lot that you can say, I think. Um, it was interesting to see what came out this time because in such a challenging global environment of 2022, it, you know, it wouldn't have been that surprising to see like flat or no growth for, you know, subscribers or for um, subscription revenue um, or just, you know, recorded music revenue in general. And yet we did see, you know, modest increases. So I think that was like the first interesting point was just the good news of music showing its staying power in such a challenging environment. Um, but then at the same time, we, you know, we're, we're in this phase where streaming is reaching maturity and established markets. It's time to kind of think about what are the next growth drivers for the music industry. Um, so there's just a ton of threads to, to pull out there. Say the, um, there's definitely a really interesting point there as well, that even though growth maturing in established markets, it's still the key revenue driver from a, yeah, just from a revenue perspective, when we look at the growth that's happening in emerging markets, it is really exciting, but it is coming much more from a user perspective since the revenues there are much, much smaller than they are in, in the West too. So there's this real, I guess, decoupling of 
the markets you can look at it as this kind of established market music industry and this emerging market music industry and there's a couple different dynamics that are happening on either side of that as well I wanted to jump in before we we came on Chris you mentioned something you said we we, we talked we looked at different cases and I'm kind of curious how you guys come up with these these uh, forecasts on the back end because for most of us the numbers thing it's 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 just beguiling and and I'm kind of curious how you guys kind of come up with this and this sort of it sounds like you do do you test different scenarios how does that all work yeah so I think there's like I said, it, it is almost like voodoo, especially when we see um, the guts of it when Mark opens up the model and we're we're just mere models when we're kind of looking at how those numbers get pieced together and how it all um, ends up turning into this model. All I can say is there's a few different factors to really consider. One is just the, the breadth and quality of the inputs that go into the media models. Um, the, Mark has been doing this a long time. It's you know, his whole career essentially has been building and refining these types of models. Um, Keith as well, who's the consulting director, so that's Keith Jopling. Um, he used to work at the IFPI as well for a long time. So we've got some real experts in house that know exactly what they're doing. And we also have really, really great relationships with loads of stakeholders across the industry from, you know, the labels, publishers, um, anyone kind of in between as well with the, you know, sort of streaming services too. So we get a lot of really great conversations that give us a lot of context to, and a lot of understanding of how companies have been doing, how the industry has been doing over the past year. And I think the real strength that we have in house is just a real amazing resource of historical data of trends and growth curves across all sort of markets and emerging technologies, which is almost like a lens that we can put onto these forecasts and we can see, you know, typically depending on what stage a market is at, where, where is it in the S curve? And we've got a whole load of S curves just historically, which give us great context of how things pan out. And when it comes to these cases, it's not something we have typically done, but it's been such a volatile year and such an unpredictable year. Um, few years, in fact, that it really yeah. made it worth it for us to start looking at different scenarios, which were some were more optimistic and some which were more pessimistic than one that was in between the middle of that as well. Yeah. You know what I'm noticing about your team is it's not just a bunch of data scientists. It's music fans like us. You know, uh, I know Keith, you know, I love the song Somalier. You know, I love you know all of the work that he's done on that side, and it's the same with Mark. And and just from hearing both of you speak and write, I can tell that it's they're passionate music people, not just people uh, crunching the numbers. Exactly. I think that that's the most important part to it is really like the art and science of it. Um, because obviously this is extremely, you know, data backed. We use consumer surveys, we use financial reports, we do interviews with stakeholders. Like we have a country scorecard, um, for the, the, all the, all these different, you know, GDP and all these other things that, um, impact it. It's yeah. also just having that understanding of, um, the nuances of how the industry operates that, you know, I think is part of what sets us apart. And also, you know, we get questions every year that are, why are your forecasts different than, you know, the IFPI or the Goldman Sachs or, you know, whatever it is. 
Um, and there's a couple things there. Um, we do our reports always in dollars and in constant currency, um, just to try to get the most, you know, clear, realistic sense of what's going on. Um, and we also, you know, there's some independent artists and independent label revenue that we capture that others don't and things like that. Um, but as you said at the start, you know, we're usually only a cup less than 1% or 3% off from, from the actuals. So we're not trying to just, you know, you know, blow up the percentages just to like make everything look good. We want to, we want to give the market, you know, an idea of what the yeah. realistic sense of what's actually going on, which is in the end, the most valuable that you can have. And this, and, and these forecasts go out to 2030, which when you read 2030, you're like, gosh, that's a long ways out. But no, <laughs> it's really about Alyssa Scotia over six years. Um, yeah. and, and, and when you're forecasting, I assume the further out you get, the more foggy and, and opaque things are. Why do you guys take it to, in this case, essentially a little over six years? Is that, a, is that the sweet spot when you're forecasting? Yeah, I think it's something that, has historically worked for us in the sense that going any further than that i mean imagine trying to forecast you know a decade and think of how much the industry has changed in the past decade you know we're only not even 10 years out from the real kind of peak growth of you know spotify and you know 2014 15 and so going up to a decade can be a bit almost fruitless i think we you know we feel good about what's happening next year um we feel good about you know the kind of years after that and then going up to sort of year five year six it's starting to really say you know we're, we're kind of at the limits of where like i said when we look at how the s curve is shaping up and you know our kind of historical look at how growth happens and what growth looks like across markets across technologies you know, there's still, we don't want to, we don't want to write off the industry after 20, you know, 2030. We want to say, you know, look, this is where things are headed on this kind of trajectory. And ultimately it's a call on the future and there's no facts about the future. It's, it's pretty much, you know, this is an input for people to use for their own forecast, for their own decision-making over the next, you know, five to seven years. And beyond that, let's, let's hope that we can bring ideas and bring new concepts and new ways of thinking to the table that will make these forecasts look really pessimistic down the you know down the line you know we want to be yeah. back at this and saying hey we actually managed to make this call at this time but it we turned it up even higher and you know because we brought this forecast out and we bring these ideas in response to these this forecast we can help the industry grow and help create more opportunities for everyone. That's a great point. Um, you also mentioned emerging markets and it makes me wonder what other areas can, can we get more growth or more revenue from? And the first thing that pops into my head is people who aren't subscribing now, you know, grabbing them, um, maybe charging more for streaming in general. What, what are some ways that you think that we're going to grow this business uh, over the next six years. Yeah, it's interesting. We did, um, unrelated to this forecast, we did a question in one of our consumer surveys that was about if you haven't, for, for those who haven't subscribed to streaming, what are your reasons? And the number one thing was just, I don't listen to music enough. <laughs> 
just a bit depressing. And um, the others were things like, I can't justify the price or I can't afford it or um, what what was it? I just don't understand it. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a lot that can be done to get more out of existing subscribers in that sense, because knowing that like there's only so much left that you can grow. And I think things like price tiering are interesting where, you know, right now you really only have, you pay nothing or you pay $9.99, or maybe you're on a family plan or maybe you're on a student, but those are really the only other options. And yeah. maybe through that model, we're not capturing those people who are just never going to subscribe to streaming, um, but maybe would be willing to pay, I don't know, $5.99 a month for up to 10 hours of free, of, you know, ad support of, sorry, ad free streaming followed by ad supported or, you know, something like that. So I think there's a lot to explore when it comes to price tiering. Um, and also a big thing that we kind of alluded to in this forecast, but have written a lot about at Nydia is the monetization of fandom and how on streaming, there's nothing extra that you can pay for if you're a super fan. There's, you know, everyone is kind of treated the same and everyone is, pay is paying the same price. Um, so that's something that um, we really believe there's a lot of opportunity in. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I agree. But I think there's also a counter to even though people might be saying, you know, they're not subscribing because they're not listening to enough music. One of the other questions we had in one of our recent surveys was we looked across all entertainment verticals. So music, video games, um, TV, film. And we asked how important is this or how much of a reflection of this type of entertainment is it a part of your identity, essentially, right? And music came out top across any form of entertainment. It's the most tied to people's identity. And I think that's really powerful. It really shows the strength that music has in how it can really integrate into culture and become part of people's lives and become a part of who people choose, how people choose to express themselves really. And there's massive untapped opportunities there because we've gone from, you know, a, a music economy, which was based on sales. And when you have to choose and you have to decide to spend your money on a particular product, that transaction is an expression of who you are saying you are to an economy now, which is $9.99 for all music. And it's removed that layer of identity and removed that value that the transaction actually had which was i am saying who i am by making this purchase and that's why vinyl sales have grown and why we're seeing people go back to cassettes and things like this because mm -hmm. people want to make that decision people want to use music to express who they are and i think that there's a lot that this new music business and the future of the music industry can do to really capitalize on that I thought what was interesting in, 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 you know, as we kind of are transitioning into the other report, um, you guys mentioned that, ironically, the streaming economy has kind of made uh, listening so much more passive. And so to get across that great divide to tapping into this fandom, in many ways, we're kind of reteaching how people are kind of currently passively listening to music. And that's, that's a really interesting observation. I know you guys have been talking about this, this uh, monetizing fandom for a long time. And it seems like finally now people are kind of listening. Yeah. And that's a big challenge with it, right? Because 
It's great. We're since we've been we've been shouting this from the rooftops for a long time. Um, so it's it's mm-hmm. great to see the industry kind of galvanizing around this idea of wait, we need to serve the fans more. We need to cultivate fandom and monetize it. Um, but at the same time, it's like wait, we've been teaching people to be better passive listeners for the past decade. So at the same time, I think we can't just expect that suddenly you know we're going to start putting out these fandom focused products and people are going to immediately latch on. There's this need to kind of focus on recultivating fandom in the first place. And I think that's really important to note and talk about, not only because it's sort of the right way to do things, but also because I can I expect that this sudden obsession with fandom is gonna go through almost like a hype cycle where everyone's gonna be obsessed with it. The music industry is gonna put out a bunch of new like fandom focused products or maybe features on streaming will come up or whatever. And they won't be adopted as quickly as everyone expected. And I don't want at that point, everyone to say, oh, it didn't work. You know, this experiment, what everyone was saying isn't true because I think it's just gonna, it's gonna take time. But the the positive thing that's also driving that is that um, we see, you know, not just anecdotally, but also in our in our consumer surveys when we test these things, that Gen Z is a lot more interested in being really active about the way that they consume entertainment. They don't just want to sit back and passively consume content. They want to have an active role in it. They want to create it themselves, or they want to create their own version yeah. of it. So um, I think that's part of what will help, you know, recultivate that active fandom that we so need. I think that's spot on. Um, I just know from watching the industry. As you point out, Tatiana, it's it's not enough to just listen to music. Fans <clears throat> at shows, they want greater access. They want a paid meet and greet, or they want some type of experience, or they want to be up front. Um, and then those photos that they get taken with their artists, that's currency on social media. And to your point, they want to participate. They want to reverb it, slow it down, speed it up, <clears throat> do their own remix of it. Um, it's It's a whole different world, and I sort of... I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that's going to affect the the forecasts as well as you're trying to monetize all of this. Yeah, you want to go ahead, Chris? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's a whole chunk of the forecast which we've carved out as a non-DSP streaming, and we think that's a really big part of what's to come. We're still at the really early days of this, where you know, for for the most part that's pretty much just kind of sort of blanket licensing and one-off payments from, you know, social platforms to try and say, you know, we know we're kind of using music. It's going to take a while to figure out the right rights framework to underpin Mm -hmm. this, the right way of compensating it. So give it time, let it develop, it will work. And I think that's, you know, a really big part of the future growth driver that we see in the music industry and, to your point around, you know, how fans are engaging with, with music. And, you know, I put out a blog post this week on essentially how fans, you know, in the future are going to not just be playing music, but playing with music. And it's going to be a whole new dynamic around essentially being able to mold music to however you want to express yourself. And when you switch that lens on and you start looking at, music as a much more kind of fluid product as opposed to something that is just made and then consumed but something that can go back and forth and something that fans can play with and fans can express themselves with and you know to a large extent they already are they are doing that off platform for the most part as this becomes more 
integrated with the overall consumption experience and creativity and consumption just seamlessly overlap. There's just so many new ways for the industry to capitalize on that and to really facilitate it and, you know, let that be the sort of next generation and next wave of youth culture and allow it to flourish. And hopefully, yeah, the music industry will flourish as a consequence of that too. No, and I just want to emphasize your point about like, this is already happening. Like when we, when we look at the sped up trend on TikTok, it's like that started because users were speeding up these songs and then uploading the sped up version. And then the music industry came around to it and said, oh, okay, you guys want this. So we're going to, you know, we're going to put it on Spotify also to capture the revenue from it. But they put, you know, they put their own official sped up remixes, but rather than reproduce what fans are already doing, why not give them the ability in the app to do that themselves and, you know, have that be a new sort of license or a new revenue stream for the music industry where fans can actually play around with the songs. Um, we've also started to see, I think, when artists are releasing new songs, it's so fascinating how the like single pack on on the streaming service will include the official song, the sped up version, the slow down version, the instrumental, you know, the acapella. And these are things not for people to generate like necessarily listen to on streaming, but for them to go and take, you know, into their content that they're making on platforms like TikTok. So it's sort of our, it's already happening and we're so close to that like actual overlap. Um, we just maybe, you know, it takes time to get licensing for this type, these types of things figured out. But I think that's really positive that the music industry is reacting to and engaging with that um, desire from the users to actually play around with these songs. Uh, talking about TikTok, uh, you mentioned in in one of the reports, the the again, the divide, though, between fans engaging with the song on TikTok but not necessarily making it across to the DSP and streaming that song. You know, if, if you're a DSP or if you're a label, what, what do you do to maybe limit that divide or, or narrow that divide if, if you can? Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the biggest, the biggest uh, struggles I think that everyone's been having is that it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always translate. And I think adding to that is the fact that streaming services themselves are so song focused. So even if you're on TikTok and you see, um, you know, you like this song and then you do actually follow the breadcrumbs to listening to it, you're still in an environment where everything is focused on the song and not the artist. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot that like, you know, uh, labels and artists have done and like the, their marketing teams know this better than us. But I think we think that there's an opportunity there for streaming services also to, you know, make things a little bit more about the artist, because something that we find uh, speaking to that, like identity stuff in the consumer survey that Chris was talking about is that what makes someone a fan of an artist is not listening to their music. It's knowing more about who they are and what they represent and their backstory and what they wear and their sense of humor and all these other things that aren't really communicated well on streaming and even if they are communicated well on TikTok, sometimes the fan doesn't get there and it's just kind of this really disjointed experience so i think there's a lot that can change about you know how these platforms are actually structured and like streaming i mean and what information you're able to get as a fan about the artist and not just the song like i think this is almost like it's on the entire industry to help um make things more about that 
there is another. I find that really fascinating. Oh, go ahead, Chris. So there's another side to it as well, which really almost exposes the limitations of the current industry model in that you can have this viral success on TikTok. And if it doesn't translate to streaming, it's, you know, written off as a failure, right? But why does that necessarily have to be the case? Because ultimately, songs being used in TikTok is a product of creator behavior and songs being streamed on a streaming platform is a product of consumer behavior. So they are two inherently different things. And people using songs en masse to express themselves creatively is no mean fee. It's still something that should be celebrated, should still be seen as success. And it's more yeah. about how can we find more ways to capitalize on creative behavior in an industry model that's built around hyper-consumption. Yeah, what you're saying sounds really logical, but being in the music industry for as long as we have, we've seen uh, one story sort of repeat itself many times, and that is that you know the music industry is inherently afraid of what it doesn't understand, and so whether it's you know digital downloads initially or even streaming, it took a while to adopt that. Um, the music industry sometimes tries to crush the new technology. And, you know, we were worried that that's what would happen with AI. And we're seeing that that's actually not the case with, you know, Universal um, partnering with Endel or, or whatever it is. It seems like, and, and from what Tatiana said a moment ago about labels sort of embracing these different um, formats, it, it seems a little bit more encouraging now. Is that sort of what you're seeing as well, that the industry is maybe a little bit more open to some of these other configurations? I think definitely. I think that there's a really broad consensus that's kind of, let's not repeat past mistakes. Um, and I think you mentioned a couple of examples like UMG kind of uh, doing a lot with AI. Um, I think, what was the other example I was going to bring up? Um, oh, even just going back to what we were just talking about with the music industry releasing the official sped up versions of songs. But of course, they were also doing that to try and capture the revenue from those that they're not necessarily getting from TikTok. So like, that's a whole other part to it. But I think it's also a good sign of wanting to, to work collaboratively. And I think when we look back at all of the examples that you mentioned, I think it hasn't always only been about like monetization and like the industry worried about, you know, piracy and all these things. But it's also been about control. Like it's any time that the music industry finds that there's a new format or sorry, a new like platform or new technology that is becoming really important to the music industry, but that they don't control, whether it's TikTok or YouTube or whatever, we tend we've tended to have that response. Um, and I think hopefully we're moving to a place where it's less about control and more about collaboration. Yeah. Um I I want to kind of touch on, and this one of the things I found really fascinating about one of the studies is the Asian music companies, like that many people, me included, wouldn't necessarily be familiar with, like NetEase, Cloud Music, Tencent, know about Tencent, uh, and Hybe. How are they handling this monetization of fandom? Because they're quite a ways out ahead of us in that area. Yeah, it's so different. Um, Tencent and NetEase are really fascinating because when you look at their financials, they actually earn more revenue annually from a very like comparatively small segment of super fans than they do from the comparatively large segment of subscribers. 
Um, and that's because the the super fans have the ability to, you know, buy extra things like live streams are a big part of it and like karaoke. Um, and I think for a long time, it was, it was kind of assumed that those types of things wouldn't work in other places that, oh, this is something culturally different about China or about, you know, Asia that people are willing to do this. And I think that's starting to be proven wrong. Um, I think Hybe is also a really interesting example because I believe the majority of their revenue, or it might just be a bigger, a much bigger chunk than most, you know, major labels in the West, um, comes from non-recorded music sources because they're doing a lot to um, monetize IP also in ways that the artist doesn't need to be there for. And you could look at that one way and say like, oh no, that makes me nervous if you're an artist or a manager. Like I don't want to give, you know, my name and likeness rights away to the label. I don't want to do this and that. Um, but I also think that one of the things that artists are really struggling with is having to be there for everything. It used to be that with marketing, you know, your label would take your photos and put them on billboards or whatever. And like, you didn't need to be part of that process. Now that social media is equated with marketing, you have to be there as the artist, you have to be on the camera, you have to be doing all these things. So I think that model of um, creating, you know, they make like comic books and these things called webtoons and like all these, all these interesting ways of using artists IP that the artist doesn't have to actually be there for. And that becomes a big part of their revenue. So yeah, there's so much that we can learn. Yeah. And that point on, you know, bringing up comic books, I think it's a really great analogy for what the future of the music business might look like in that you've got some really strong, high profile characters and they endure for a really, really long time. You know, we've had Spider-Man and Superman and, you know, Wolverine for decades. And mm -hmm. there's whole IP franchises built around that. And it's a similar thing, you know, in music, we've got some really, really strong established superstars who, you know, are pretty much like superheroes to their super fans. And there is a lot more of a drive to build out more IP around them. And I think, um, you know, in Hive in particular have said, you know, they, they treat their artists almost like Marvel characters. Right. And it's, it's a really great analogy for, you know, you've got this really strong superstar superhero sector of the music industry, but there's also this incredible independent sector of, you know, the comic book, graphic novel industry as well, which, you know, produces things, you know, like The Walking Dead, for instance, which, you know, became a massive franchise that came out of the independent sector. And so if there's a way that the superstar economy of music can coexist as fruitfully as the independent sector of the music industry, I think we're, we're all in for a good ride. Yeah, I don't think the indie side gets enough ink um, I was reading in a report recently, <clears throat> excuse me, that only 4% of the songs that are uploaded on average each week are from the majors, that most of it is on the indie side. And we all see what's happening with platforms like BandLab. Talk a little bit about the indie side and, and how you see that, uh, how they treat fandom and, and, and the potential growth there. Well, I think one thing that's quite important to consider, you know, as Tati was saying about the the willingness to embrace these new models from the kind of overall industry side. A big part of that is because of the growth of the independent artist sector and the increased 
leverage that artists have now due to what they can achieve independently it really creates this need for anyone working with any type of artist to really you know stay up to date and stay on track with what's happening because yeah there are so many artists out there who if they are one step ahead of the overall industry then they can find success you know completely independently now and a lot of it comes down to just the way that you know consumption has yeah, and discovery has become so much more i guess sort of algorithmically um dictated almost too far as i'm sure you have something to say about taddy as well um but there is if you are very clear about who you are as an artist your values your identity and you're really connected to a broader community a broader scene and you're consistent about how you are and authentic about that as well it really opens up a, a window for you to build a solid fan base from the ground up and become you know a big part of whatever scene you're in yeah i have one thing to add to that which is i think when we look at these stats of music being uploaded to dsps um and just like the self-releasing sector in general we kind of tend to assume that everybody in that segment is trying to become an, like a professional artist like they're either a professional or they're aspiring or like they're really trying to make a career out of music and one of the most interesting reports i worked on this year was um looking at the aspirations of the um the creators that fall into the self-releasing segment in our creator survey and we actually found that um it's nearly equally divided between those who are passionate about music and trying to become professional and those who are passionate but not trying to make music their full-time career. And what's super interesting, another super interesting thing about that is they're actually, because they don't depend on music for income, they're willing to spend more on things like sounds and sample packs and you know instruments and like all this other stuff. So I think we're we're just entering, this is a topic I could spend, you know, another hour talking about, but I think the like headline is we're entering this world where there's a very new there's all these new definitions of what it actually means to be a creator maybe you're just as we were talking about earlier someone on social media that's playing around with songs maybe you have a band as a side project and you're releasing on spotify but you're not trying to make it your full-time career um so there's there's all these new degradations um as the barrier to entry continues to lower of like how you can engage with music what your what your goals are what you're trying to spend like it's just it's not as black and white as it used to be that's fascinating because I do make the assumption that yes, people are really trying to. I didn't yeah. think about this until I saw that survey data, and then I was like, "Wait a minute!" <laughs> and and that brings up to me. I mean, you guys look at data all the time, and I'm just kind of curious. You know, when the, these two reports that we're talking about, what surprised each of you? There, every time you do one of these, there must be kind of just, oh, I didn't think about that. That's interesting. What surprised you in these two reports that you didn't expect? Do you want to go first, Chris? No, nah, after you. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that jumps to mind for me, and maybe isn't all that surprising once you really think about it, but um, I was looking in the fandom report at how uh, younger generations are engaging with streaming because now we're at the point where you know streaming has been around for a while. It's been you know it's mature. And we actually do see new ways of engaging with streaming. Not everyone is listening the same. 
And playlists are really interesting there because um, I think we're seeing that, or not I think, we, we are seeing that the, the youngest segment that we survey, 16 to 19 year olds, are a lot less likely to listen to playlists um, than, than older segments. And part of that I think is a life stage thing. I think that, um, you know, when you're 16, you don't want someone to tell you what to listen to. You're like in that age where you're like, you're, you wanna discover and you're looking up things yourself. But I also think it's a generational difference. I think it's, um, you know, that that discovery um, side of music listening has shifted a lot to social. And I also think going back to what we were saying about Gen Z wanting more of an active role, um, on the flip side of that stat, they're actually more likely to make their own playlists. So they're not listening to as many that others have made for them, and they're more likely to make their own. Um, and all of that was really interesting to me. And it's something that I don't think is talked about enough because, of course, playlists are and have been one of like the major marketing forces um, in, in the music industry that everyone is focused on. Um, but maybe it's not, that's not going to be the same. Like we're not going to reach the next generation in the same ways that we reached this one. So that was really interesting and a bit surprising to me. I think my big surprise was probably the pace at which content creation and time spent on content creation is increasing, particularly amongst younger generations and with content creation typically comes with you know usage of music or usage of you know a sound and as that you know continues to increase and you know potentially we could see it come close to the the type of time that people are spending on actually listening to music what you know will it come to a point where using music in a tiktok video counts towards the charts and, you know, I really loved your podcast last week. You were talking about how fans are gaming the charts and trying to really push their artists forward. You know, if you're using, if you're able to use music in a TikTok video and that counts towards, you know, chart performance, it's a real incentive for fandom and real incentive for fans to start saying, look, everyone, we've got to use this video, use this song or uh, remix this song in a particular way and it's going to help this artist that we all love get to where we want it to be and I think we're that's going to come a lot sooner than people might be ready for yeah Tatiana when I saw your presentation in Nashville one thing jumped out at me and it's one of those things where I just wasn't thinking about you were talking about things that music streaming competes with mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit yeah, I mean, I think we used to be in this world where all the enter types of entertainment were kind of like siloed and only competing within, you know, if you were an artist, you were competing with other artists. Um, if you were, you know, a, putting out a movie, you were competing with other movies. And now, of course, everything is overlapping and uh, there, people are kind of running out of time and attention in their day. Um, and so I think, I don't know if this is what you're alluding to, but where my mind went is with, um, with the non-DSP stuff, like it used to be thought yes. of that, like TikTok was purely additive to streaming. Going back to your point before, it was all about, you know, let's push that interest onto, you know, consumption on streaming platforms. Um, but I think now we're in a, in a place where it's, it may even be like stealing some of, I mean, it is, it is stealing some of um, users' time away from streaming platforms, especially because it's one of those things where you can only use a lot of these platforms, like a lot, since since so much of social is social video now, you need the volume on, you can't scroll while you're listening to music somewhere else. So like you are directly competing for people's time. 
And I think that's something going back to the forecast that we saw with non-DSP is it may eat a bit into not streaming subscriptions necessarily, but ad supported accounts because people might find that they're getting a pretty, you know, premium feeling music experience just from using these social apps that music is a part of. So I think, um, yeah, that, that interplay is interesting. And um, we haven't brought up like the launch of TikTok music or anything like that, but I think that's a fascinating um, element to all of this because it could bring, you know, speaking to that, connecting the dots between the artist and the song, you know, that could bring that together. Um, Mm -hmm. It creates more of a flywheel than competing, these two things competing for each other's time. Um, So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to discuss there. Well, before we let you guys go, um, I I wanted to talk really quickly about super fans. I'm a super fan. I'm sure you are too. And I will cheerfully buy the deluxe edition of something and I want to have it physically as well as digitally. And I want to buy the merch and I want to go to the shows and I want to support those artists. And, and I've heard you say this, Tatiana, I think as an industry, we're not doing a great job at taking care of super fans and giving them the, the things that they want and, and it will help monetize uh, and support their artists. Can you talk a little bit about how we can better support uh, these super fans? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, I think. Like, I I think as we, as we talked about earlier with streaming, there could be more ways to express yourself um, with, you know, things like badges for your profile, which AudioMac has experimented with. You know, actually, really, I think it all goes to expression. I think because fandom is so much about identity, it's about giving people ways to express themselves. And so if you're buying a badge for your profile, you're showing everyone that ends up on your profile that you're a fan of this artist. Like, I I think it's really about that connection. And that gets into, you know, even virtual merchandise, which I do think will be a big part of the future because people feel the need to represent themselves online and they they will want to buy, I think, you know, the skin for their character or whatever of their favorite artist. So I think, I think there's a lot, but again, we have to be careful to not just try and squeeze money out of people. Um, yeah. I think we've seen fans get angry and there's been a lot of backlash. Like when, um, I don't know if you guys saw Beyonce started selling like discounted tickets that were behind the stage. And I'm sure in her mind, she was like, oh, I want to give my fans, you know, who make maybe can't afford the front stage tickets still a way to participate. But the fans reaction was like, <laughs> how dare you like charge us for this terrible experience. And some have said similar things about like all the Taylor Swift merch that came out of like, I don't want to feel like I have to spend all this money to prove that I'm a fan. So I think that there's, there needs to be that balance of um, Mark always says cultivating fandom and not, not harvesting it. Ooh, that's a great phrase. I like that. That's really great. (laughs) I think a big part of that is just making music a more active experience. And I think going back to the previous question as well, we, did a little look into uh, what we call the music aficionados, which are basically our our kind of super fans, um, who are the consumers who listen to music the most, that spend the most money on music. And we looked at the amount of time they spend on other forms of entertainment as well. And 
they're spending more than half of their entertainment hours on either social media or streaming like video. And so the analogy I like to use is, you know, if you're, if you're McDonald's and you've got your, you know, biggest customers spending half their time at Burger King or KFC, you'd be pretty worried. Right. And so I think this is the situation that the music industry is in, which is how do we compete with, streaming video how do we compete with social media how do we make music more active and i think creation is a big part of that because creation does command your full attention and ultimately anyone who makes music will tell you it's because they love it it's because they're a fan of music it's because they are super yeah. fans of a particular artist so much that they wanted to learn their songs they wanted to practice performing their music they wanted to write their own music in the style of that type of artist. You know, making music is the most beautiful extension of super fandom. And it's time to really connect the dots between the two, in my opinion. I think yeah. one other thing to add to that I just thought of, which is, I think some, we don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel. Like even though there are so many really amazing new ways to cultivate and monetize fandom that Chris has been talking about and that we've been talking about. I think some of it will also be like simpler than we thought. And a great example is um, we asked a question in a consumer survey about like artist subscriptions, like direct, you know, direct to fan artist subscriptions and what would make fans want to subscribe, which would mean like paying $5 a month is what we said. And I think most artist subscriptions on Patreon and things like that have been have revolved around like behind the scenes content and also access to the artist, you know, Q&A's, things like that, which take a lot of time out of the artist. Mm -hmm. And what this is actually going back to your question about surprises. I was surprised to see that those were actually at the bottom of the list of things people wanted. The, right. So surprising. The things at the top were just early access and exclusive uh, for music and merchandise and tickets. They just want to get the things that they already like either sooner, uh, like before like before everyone else or exclusively. And so that actually is really just windowing and that's something that doesn't take any effort from the artist. So I think we, as much as it's so exciting um, and we should be thinking of all these innovative new ways, um, to approach this. I think we also don't necessarily need to reinvent all the wheels. <laughs> Interesting point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of this is sort of yeah. classic stuff. Jay and I have been, you know, 30 years ago, you were kind of contemplating and yeah, maybe that is more basic than we want to make it be. Yeah. You guys, thank you so much for helping us celebrate our three year anniversary. Yes. It's just such a thrill to talk to you. Um, continued success. We'll be, uh, We'll be shouting your reports from the rooftop, and uh, I hope you come back and join us again sometime. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you, and happy three years. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.